It's a place you can go when you're happy, when you're sad. You know, you can always find poetry that that makes your head explode and and makes your heart beat faster. So so I think it's just the most amazing place to go. Welcome to Archipelago, a podcast about arts, culture and ideas in Denmark. I'm your host, James Clasper, and we're kicking off season two with a very special guest indeed. Naya Marie Eight has been described as one of the most intelligent writers of the contemporary literary world and as one of the most compassionate voices in fiction. Born in Greenland and raised in Copenhagen, she's the author of 10 poetry collections and three short story collections, including Baboon, which in 2008 won the Nordic country's most prestigious literary award, the Nordic Council's Literature Prize. Domestic plaudits have led to international acclaim as well. Baboon was published in English in 2014, and Naya's debut novel, Rock, Paper, Scissors, in 2015. But I anticipate both books being eclipsed by Naya's latest book in translation. It's a work of non-fiction called When Death Takes Something From You, Give It Back, a cryptic and, as it turns out, deeply personal title that only hints at the tragedy the book describes. And believe me when I say, it's one of the most remarkable books you'll ever read. I was thrilled when Naya found time amid her busy schedule at the Aarhus Literature Festival earlier this summer to discuss the book with me. But we began by talking about Greenland. I wanted to know whether the long dark winters had helped foster her love of reading and writing. Yeah, I guess so. And also because, you know, the Greenlandic people uh, have a very strong tradition for telling stories. Well, no surprise because the weather is so harsh. But um, so there's a big tradition for that and and uh, all kinds of myth and, you know, very exciting and terrifying stories. So it was a very dramatic place to start your life, I would say. Naya says she started writing stories as soon as she'd learned how to spell. And she didn't have to look far for inspiration. When she was seven, her family decided to return to Copenhagen. Moving back to Denmark was really tough. I mean, my, my parents divorced and the, it was a huge, big cultural shock, I think, for me and my sister. Because coming from this small, small village in the middle of nowhere... And then I remember I was really afraid of the, the the big houses. I mean, compared to New York City, it's nothing but maybe like four-story houses. But but also, you know, starting school in Denmark, forgetting the Greenlandic language, it kind of just ran out of me. If you're not in Greenland, there's really nothing to to use it for. So um, so that was that was really that felt like grief and loss in a way. Yeah. And then I started writing stories as soon as I could and and actually song lyrics mostly. And I had a band, you know, when I was in fifth, sixth grade, started playing music and yeah. Naya's love affair with music continued into adulthood and she eventually spent several years working in the music industry. But sixth grade song lyrics inspired by ABBA and the Beatles soon gave way to poetry or what she calls her temple. I'm not religious, but I do believe in art and the arts, and I believe in, in poetry. It's a place you can go when you're happy, when you're sad. You know, you can always find poetry that that makes your head explode and and makes your heart beat faster. So, so I think 
It's just the most amazing place to go. And I think that, you know, the salvation that people maybe search for when they go to church, I find that in poetry. It's not something that makes you rich, for sure, but I'm very thankful that I started out in poetry and I'm still writing poetry because it's, it feels like home. And, and writing poetry is so nerdy and so difficult, so I always go back to that to kind of challenge myself. In the mid-1990s, Naya started writing short stories, and while the first run of her debut collection was just 350 copies, high school teachers in Denmark started using them in class, and her readership rocketed. She's never looked back. In 2008, her haunting short story collection Baboon won the Nordic Council's Literature Prize, as well as the Danish Critics' Prize for Literature. Six years later, Baboon was translated into English, and she followed it with two collections of poetry before releasing her debut novel, Rock, Paper, Scissors, in 2012. Picked up by the US-based publishing company Open Letter, it was slated for publication in English in late 2015. By then, Naya was living with her family in Brooklyn and seemed to have the world at her feet. But then one night in Copenhagen, tragedy struck. My second um, child, Carl, took magic mushrooms with a friend. He was 25 years old. And he, um, he was hit by a, a drug-infused in, uh, psychosis, basically. And he jumped out the window from the fifth floor and died. At that time, I was living in New York, and but for some reason I was in Denmark for only four days to receive two literary awards. So it was like a happy trip, but it turned out to be hor horrific, yeah. And that, of course, set me totally back. <laughs> Anything in my life was uh, influenced by this um, accident and the grief and the shock and everything and, and the, the feeling of that the world totally... Um, crashed for me and I couldn't write, I couldn't read, I couldn't, I could hardly live basically and I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to live. Having laid her son to rest and returned to New York City, Naya found herself unable to write at all. For many months after Carl's death, she found it impossible to express her grief, impossible to find the words to describe the shock and devastation of losing her child. Her language was broken, she says. In her despair, she read all the bereavement literature she could get her hands on. You know, what do you do if you're in, in the state of something that you have no idea what is? It's so frightening and it's so, um, it's so unfamiliar and you don't, know what, you don't know what it is, you don't know what to do. So what I did, I reached out for literature, of course. But I didn't want to, I couldn't write about, you know, um, sad love stories or whatever. I needed something stronger in a way. So I, I, I turned to, to literature about grief, of course. So I read um, all kinds of, you know, novels, um, poetry, and even more scientific, you know, books about what, what, what is going on in the brain, what is, how is the body reacting to grief and stuff like that. So I tried to educate myself. And, and that was definitely what 
I think helped me most of all because um, all of a sudden I felt that I wasn't alone anymore. You know that you you know when you when you're grieving you always feel like no one understands me, right? Um, no one in the whole entire world, but of course they do. And um, and it, it, it I found some some comfort in that, and and I you know just the, just the feeling of not feeling alone is very um, powerful. So it dragged me back to life in a way. Yeah. She also turned to poetry and the likes of Denise Riley, Emily Dickinson and Raina Maria Rilke. The thing about poetry is that it has it's um it's it's so abstract in a way. You can you can you can say so much in so few words and you can you can um travel around the world, you know, in in four lines. So so you can capture some essence in a different way. And um so both writing and reading poetry at that time was really healing for me. Yeah, for sure. You know, you can always go back to Rilke, and 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 reading Rilke um, when you're grieving is gives you hope somehow. Yeah. And eventually, she says, she rediscovered her ability to write. About nine months later, which is actually weird that it was almost on the date nine months later. I started to write just a few words, you know, on the back of a notebook or on a bus ticket or, you know, in a cafe on my phone. And I would wake up in the middle of the night and all of a sudden I had this sentence in my head. And so trying to cope with what happened and and slowly getting back to a writing practice was really, really, I mean, almost impossible. But, you know, slowly, slowly the language came back to me. And then there was this day where I started, I, I think I wrote maybe five lines, but it was, it was prose and it was the beginning of a story. And it was the beginning of what happened. I was sitting at my mom's dinner table with my older son, phone rang, and then, you know, and we got the bad news. So that, just those five lines about us sitting around the dinner table, that when I... When I've written them, I, I knew, okay, now I have something because there's some, here's a form, basically. That's always what you're looking for as a writer. What am I going to do? You know, how can I compose this? How can I find a form? And, and for this subject, I didn't know, you know. So Carl's book is a book about grief, loss, shock. But the thing about Carl's book is it is written in the, in the in, you know, in, in the eye of the storm in a way. So it's written while... Um, the pain is almost unbearable. I didn't wait two, three years to do like a perfect book. I, I wanted to to send my report from this this horrific place. The result is when death takes something from you, give it back. Now, before we go any further, I want to play an excerpt from the audiobook to give you a sense not only of what Naya writes about, but of her style of writing. The following clip is from the beginning of the book and is read by Catherine Manners. I wrote in my journal, Monday, 1st of May, 1989, a sunny day. I found out that in the winter, I will give birth to another child. Little winter's child, it's so strange that you exist. I still can't feel you. My body still can't understand that you exist. So excited to see him. 
Outside, the March night is cold and clear. A night full of terror. A night so full of terror. A night so full of terror, so full of terror, so full of terror, so full of terror, so... I cannot form a sentence. My language is all dried up. I raise my glass to my eldest son. His pregnant wife and their daughter are sleeping above us. The girl is exactly three years old. Outside, the March night is cold and clear. We've been together all day. We've been walking in the forest and playing with the little one. She said many wonderful things and had lots of fun. We've talked about everything imaginable and now we're sitting at the round table in my mother's living room. To life, I say, as the glasses clink. We've eaten and now we're drinking wine. We're talking about my next eldest son. How he didn't get into the Danish film school, although he made it to the final interview. That was a big accomplishment. How he seems to be getting over the disappointment and will apply again next year. How he's still enjoying his work as a chef. How he spends most of his free time editing films. How we miss him. I say, I miss him. Too bad he couldn't be with us tonight, but I can't wait to see him tomorrow, I say. The dog barks. I talk about my youngest son. We laugh at something. My mother tells the dog to be quiet. The phone rings. We don't answer it. Who could be calling so late on a Saturday evening? As I'm sure you can tell, the book is presented as a collection of fragments, written, as Nia puts it, in the eye of the storm. Its emotions are raw. Its heartrending memories and vignettes lie scattered across the pages, like the pieces of a puzzle. It's composed almost like a like a collage, you can say. Um, there's this prose text that that um, that is that is, I would say, the tree trunk of the book. And you keep coming back to this um, this story about what happened from the from the phone rang with this with the really bad news, and until my son died in in the hospital two days later. But in between this prose text, there'll be like poems and my old diary uh, excerpts, you know, from from he was little, from before I had him. Um, uh, his own po- I found that he was writing poetry himself. I didn't know. So his own poetry, um, his older brother's speech from the funeral, a very beautiful speech, um, and even um, quotations from from the world literature, um, especially the the, the uh, one who was very important to me was uh, the French poet uh, Stéphane Malamé, uh, who lost a son, eight year old son, back in the 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 eighteen hundred, and um, and his. Fragments was crucial to my own writing process because when I saw them, I knew, okay, now I understand that I'm on, you know, this is right because I, I didn't understand why I couldn't fulfill a sentence, why I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, could hardly spill anymore. And, and looking at his fragments, it was just the same thing. And it shows in a very physical way how hard it, how impossible it almost is to write about losing a child. While the book is as fragmented as a shattered mirror, so too does it flout chronology. Using her own source material, some of it decades old, Naya writes about being pregnant with Carl, about his childhood, about the night he died. But she plays with the order of things, a kind of chronological hopscotching 
there was as much a psychological necessity for its author as it was a stylistic choice. It made it possible because you don't get the whole story at once. And I think because you only get like bits of it and then somewhat something else. And then you go back to the story. It makes it bearable to actually read the book, but it also made it bearable for me to write it. And and it, it made it possible for me to um, to work freely with uh, um, with time, basically. I mean, what happens when someone dies, you feel like the world has stopped, you know, time has stopped. And you, you feel that you are, all of a sudden you're in this space of, of, of non-time, basically, you know. So... So arranging the the prose text in 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 bits um, um, made it possible for me to go back and forth in time constantly. The, the the aspect of time is very important and was very important for me to include in in a in a way that really showed the reader the confusion in time and the that there's a, that there's a before and an after, and you're just so confused and um, and nothing will ever be the same. Noya says her book has provoked a huge reaction from readers. What I'm really happy about is that so many readers um, are emailing me from, you know, all over the world and and telling me how grateful they are for the book and how much it helped them. And, and to, to, to be able, which is not usually, you know, people can be happy about a book, but this is a different book. It's, it's really for people in need, you know. And if I can do, do just a little, little thing to help people out, grieving people, I'm just very happy. It, it makes sense, you know. So his, so his death all of a sudden is not so meaning meaningless it it, it um, and it's really you know in Carl's spirit he would have appreciated that because he was very generous and and always helping other people and that it turns out is the self-same sentiment expressed by the book's cryptically poetic title some readers are like what you know what does that mean but the good thing is that if you open the flaps the french flaps you'll see the poem where the title is taken from and I did write um, two poems when Carl was 16 uh, about death and w- writing them. And, and sometimes you experience this as, as a writer that you, you feel you have like a muse or something, you know, that he was some, I felt somehow that he was giving me um, inspiration for those poems. With, I cannot describe why. Sometimes it's just like that. And then, you know, then he died and all of a sudden I was like, oh no, Right. Were they a sign? You know, did I? What could I have? Could I have done anything? Was it my? Was it my fault? Had I never written those poems, would he have lived? You know, you get crazy like that. You go back. What if? What if? What if? And you cannot. You cannot go there. But you go there all the time, um, despite the fact that you can't go there. You shouldn't. The poems are basically about. They say, when death takes something from you, give it back. Give back what you got from the living. So what 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 I got from Carl, I'm gonna give that, I'm gonna pass that on. I'm gonna pass that on to, to other people. So the love that he gave us, we're gonna pass that on. So it's it's basically about that. If if when death takes something from you, you have to give back what you got from the, the person who died. At this point, I would love to tell you 
not only that Naya rediscovered the tools of her trade, but that she experienced a kind of healing through writing, that the very act of putting words on the page was itself a form of therapy. But we all know that that only really happens in the movies. So after writing the book, I had, um, I think I got like a depression or something. I mean, I was depressed all the time, but it was like I fell down into a hole and I didn't know what to do. Because, you know, writing the book was at least something. I did something for him and I did something that was, that felt um, meaningful. But all of a sudden there was like nothing and I didn't know what to do. So I went to see my doctor and she referred me to this grief uh, therapist. It's actually a, a program for what they call complicated grief. They they test you for that. I didn't I I didn't suffer from a complicated grief. I had like normal grief, whatever that is. But um, but she would still she agreed to to treat me because the uh, the circumstances of my son's death were so dramatic and violent. And basically, it was about how um, how can I be able to deal with my post-traumatic stress? You know, the images that overwhelms me like constantly of him, um, you know, the funeral, the him in his hospital bed, the, you know, the whole thing basically. And um, so, so she, she told me to record actually um, the worst part of those um, memories. And then I had to hear my hear the recording every day for a week. Um, and at some point, uh, she promised me that I would be really bored and and not react to it. And I and every time I listened to this recording, I would have to list my grief reaction from one to ten, which is very American. But you know, it worked. And on Friday, I was like, oh no, I don't want to hear this again, right? So what it did was it helped me to to not be so afraid of um, the, the post-traumatic um, images to get to, to make the brain get used to it, basically. And it worked, you know. And the same thing with, I couldn't look at pictures of him. I couldn't listen to music. So I had to do this, this uh, playlist with like, I think there was like 40 songs on it. And she was like, that's a lot of songs. <laughs> Mostly people come with like two or three. And then I had to start backwards listening to a song. Um, with the with the less painful song first, you know, and 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 two seconds the first day, five the next, and so on. And at some point, I I didn't react to it anymore. So it's very practical in a way. And but what I really liked about it was not too much talking, not about my childhood, not about my dad and my mom, you know, the usual stuff. It was it went right to the bone and it was like okay. You're going to do this like everybody else. You're not special. You 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 have a human reaction, and I'm going to help you with that. You know, cope basically. And it 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 helped me to find a way to carry Carl with me, um, in in you know in my life, and 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 accepting that he's not around anymore. No question, Carl's book will give something back to readers for many years to come. But the question lingers for its author, what next? I think I have a dream about writing fiction. I, I want to go back to fiction. But the, the big question is, what can you write after writing um, about death? You know, 
you know, usually if you look at the classical composers, they would do a, a, a requiem and that was it, right? And they would just, that's it. <laughs> so I have, I think it's going to be very difficult for me to find my new voice, but I'm looking very much forward to it. And now I'm, I've just moved back to Denmark, so it's a new beginning in many different ways. And, I, you know, living in New York, I always had a dream about writing about the city, but I never knew how to do it because there's so much New Yorker literature But you know, it might be possible to actually write about the city now because I'm I, I I'm I'm away now and I I I see it with like different eyes because I'm not there every single day. I think that no matter what Naya writes next, no matter what literary altitude she reaches, this extraordinary book about her son's tragic death may well remain her crowning achievement. It's been a very special book for me to to publish because it's not it's not fiction it's actually the truth. You know, in England they call it a memoir, in in Denmark they call it uh, it's under fiction. So, you know, but um it's literature. It's not a it's not only a a, perf a personal a very private memoir. I tried to kind of lift it up and make it into um something beautiful and and um hopefully something important that people can can find some yeah i don't know comfort in i hope that was naya marie eight the award-winning poet novelist and short story writer and the author of the remarkable book when death takes something from you give it back which is available now through quercus in the uk and through Coffeehouse Press in the US from the 3rd of September. And that brings us to the end of the episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it. If you have, tell your friends. And if you're feeling generous, take a second to review or rate us on Apple Podcasts. This episode was written, produced and hosted by me, James Clasper, for Mother Tongue Media. The music is by two local artists, Squares and Triangles and Scenery. Many thanks for listening and see you in a few weeks.